Welcome to the More Than Music podcast with your hosts Thibaut Duchesnay and Chris Snellgrove. In each episode, we will discuss what sparked our guests' passion and what continues to motivate them to live a dedicated life to the arts. The often overlooked reality is that genuinely dedicating oneself to one's art is not all about the euphoric moments of creation and expression. We hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Today's episode features a friend of mine named Jono Hunter. Jono is a filmmaker, musician, artist, writer, record label head honcho, and all-around super talented person. He hails from the east coast of Canada and lived in Toronto for many years when he and his bandmates and horses moved there. And recently he's been living in LA, but that may be coming to an end. He has played in multiple bands, including some of my favorite bands, period, like Atlas, Horses, and Attention. He's also played in Threes, Found Objects, Downers. He's supported Malcolm Bald, Greg McPherson, and I'm sure he's played in a ton more bands. He has filmed numerous music videos for his own and his friends' bands going back over a decade and runs a record label called Must Be Nice that puts out his and his friends' records, including one of my top records the last two years, the Small Towns record. It's so good. Um, He has created many tour and show posters. He released an award-winning, well-received feature called Modern Classic, as well as numerous award-winning shorts that he wrote or co-wrote, directed, and acted in. He wrote and voiced an animated short series called Night Drives. He released a graphic novel called Visitors. Maybe later in the episode, we'll talk about hoaxes, and if we don't, I suggest you look it up. Uh, but to pay the bills, he is a very in-demand creator and director for commercials for major brands and has representation all over the world. So, Jono, welcome to the show. Yes, Thank welcome. you. Thank you for having me. Sounds pretty cool on paper. I haven't uh, had all my <laughs> accolades read back to me like that. From my friend, so <laughs> I appreciate that. It's, it's my pleasure. Honestly, you know, I know you pretty well, but doing research on you, Holy shit, man. You've done so much more than I thought you had. I'm a busy boy for sure. You are. So thank you. Thank you for fitting us in. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for asking me. I love, I love just catching up in general and especially talking to band folks. It's like being in the, in the backseat of the van, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, so let's start with the beginning. You grew up out in Cape Breton? I did. Sydney Mines, Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, which is legit the edge of the east coast of canada before you get to newfoundland like a 10 minute drive from the newfoundland ferry oh, okay. uh fraught with you know uh a labor history that was very sketchy and terrible and exploitative and uh was once a great place to live but uh once the industries left and it's it's still a great place to live but yeah it was it's it's hard up sometimes yeah, I think that's endemic of every realistically small town in the east coast of Canada. Yeah, especially Between, when mining was the was the way forward. Yeah, exactly. I was trying to think. I think I met you in 2005 or 2006 at Gobblefest when I was with Malcolm Bald. It's possible. I don't know if I would have been to Gobblefest in 2005 or 2006 because I had um, moved to Toronto in 2005. Okay, so now I'm trying to figure out when I met you. And you would have met around horses. So like I came I came to Toronto for school in 2005 and then by the end of that everyone in horses had moved to Toronto. Mm-hmm. And I was about to start my career in film and then Lockie's like, "Hey, do you want to play bass in horses?" and I was like, "Okay." <laughs> Which kicked off 10 years of not chasing my career <laughs> and uh, I I think we met you within that like it would have been around 
I don't know, because they were playing for like a year with uh, with Mark on bass, and then he left, and they asked me to join. Mark and, moved uh, to Toronto with them? Yeah, he was there for a while. And oh, then because we know. played, my band now played with Horses in 2017 in Halifax and in Sackville, and Mark was playing bass for them again. Yeah. I, I never realized he went to Toronto with them. Yeah, he was there. For, he was here for a while. Um, and then he left, and I somehow got caught up in that. So we would have met like around those first, I think it was still pre uh, you guys meeting them, right? Okay, that's possible. Maybe, but we definitely met shortly before the split was put out, obviously. <laughs> Which came out we, in 2009. <laughs> that came out in 2009? Yeah. Oh my. <laughs> I came out in like February 2009. <laughs> oh my goodness. Ugh. I saw a copy of that the other day and uh, we threw it on and it was really cool. Um, nice. Didn't know it was that long ago, but yeah, that was like pre-attention. That was attention was a glimmer in our eyes back then. Yeah, man. Oof. Yeah. All right. Um, so take us a little bit through your your life. So you went to Toronto, went to school. Uh, you were studying acting or filmmaking. So there a little bit of a a speed bump along the way. Like I, like everyone else, or like most people, I knew went to university straight away after high school. Like I was playing in bands and we started touring like the East Coast and stuff like that. We got to Toronto right before I think we went to, to university maybe. And it was just like, all right, well, now we got to go do the thing that everyone does. And I went to university at Dalhousie in Halifax for three years oh, and okay. was doing a psychology degree and uh, kind of just gearing up to find a mentor to do my honors the next year and figure out what, I'm, what kind of research I'm going to get into. And I was teaching a, a first-year lab as part of a course where um, I would get the curriculum taught to me. And then every two weeks, I would go and teach it to a class of 30 first-years. And in just at the beginning of the second semester, one of the kids is like, hey, Jono, I'm just like trying to plan my future. I kind of want to like figure out all the, the sort of checkpoints that you figured out and like want to know how to sort of steer my career. And I realized in that moment, like I wasn't thinking about any of that. Like I was just kind of, doing what my friend Danny was doing and like, oh, I'll take this class and cool. Oh, I like teaching. Cool. Maybe infant perception's cool. Yeah, great, great. And then when I was asked to outline the steps, I was like, uh, I have not thought about it. I completely <laughs> have a meltdown, like trying my best not to like meltdown in front of this kid who was, he was two years younger than me, not a kid, but like in that context. Of course. But then, yeah, I, I went home and like kind of had a freak out. A week later, I dropped every class except that one. Because uh, I was in like analytical stats and stuff, and it was just I was just getting murdered. Like it wasn't fun. I couldn't like I failed first year stats like twice, and then trying to do analytical stats right after that, I'm like, Ugh. and then I've always wanted to do the film thing, but it wasn't like from where I come from, it wasn't like a thing that was on the list of stuff you could do. You know, you just go and yeah. get a real job and you know contribute to whatever and. I kind of realized like, well, what, what do I want to do? And I'm like, I'm never going to show a friend a, a, a research paper and be like, look what, look what babies can see. <laughs> look what babies can see. Uh, and I was like, maybe I just want to try this film school thing out. So I applied for a bunch of schools like Concordia, um, Ryerson, yeah. and Humber College. But and did you have a portfolio of sorts? Like had you been <laughs> filming on your own? I've ha I had like one short film that I made that was like not worth showing anyone and like a bunch of stills. So I, I borrowed a camera and like got stuff, just try to make stuff. And I didn't get accepted to Concordia or Ryerson, uh, but I got accepted to Humber 
And uh, yeah, in 2005, just booked it up here to go to college. Awesome. So what and that was... Sorry, what got you interested in films? I mean, does this go date back to you being a child or an adolescent? Uh, oh, big time. I was an only child growing up, so and a bit of a sort of outlier, I guess. I wasn't super into sports. I was more into girly stuff and like just introverted things and and kind of exploring my imagination and sitting in the corner playing alone because like I just didn't really identify with a lot of people outside of my mind. Um, so that once I was allowed to watch TV, that kind of became a solace and became, uh, like, like I said, I made a bunch of like dumb things with friends that we would just shoot for the hell of it and make ourselves laugh. But it was really the only thing that I could think like, I don't want to do music professionally necessarily because then I think it would take away from like the sort of punk aspect and like. Um, the, the, the freedom that it afforded me creatively, I didn't want to ever taint that with trying to make money from it. And then it was like, well, film could kind of work. I heard people make commercials and, you know, keep afloat. So I kind of went in there thinking that that would be a good thing. And then, yeah, when I got to film school, of course, I was going to graduate and immediately get, you know, a deal somewhere and be making (laughs) features and like, you know, not have to PA for five years after that. And (laughs) Struggle, which I did uh, have to struggle for five years, but it, yeah, it was great. But it, it was always a sort of aspiration. Like when I got into high school, um, we had a, my high school was a trade school. So kids from all over Cape Breton would come to the school for like mechanics or like carpentry and radio and TV was one of them. And I was like, I want to do that. I wanted to spend half of the day every week, every day to uh, make stuff. And my parents were like, that's not practical, dude. Like, <laughs> just get a good grade in math and then do whatever you want. You can get a Bachelor of Arts, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, it just didn't feel feasible until I was faced with um, this or that and then chose this. And at a very early age, you were already sensible about this art and selling this art or commercializing this art and saying, I don't want to go there. I want to play music just to play music, not to make a career plan out of it. Where did that come from? This just this notion that you were going to keep this kind of sacred. I mean, that might not be the right word, but just, you know, devoid of trying to monetize it. Yeah. Well, I think the one word that could sum it up is punk, right? Like we all kind of came up in this thing that we had to grow on our own. Like there wasn't a, there was a punk scene where I grew up, but it was because of the generation above us started it you know yeah and i guess that was a rock scene before you know it devolved into this weird amazingly degenerate group of people but i that's when i started like listening to propaganda and like satanic surfers and like getting politicized really quickly through music and learning how to play guitar and bass like it all seemed to kind of come in concert with one another and uh everyone that I was playing music with was like, yeah, I don't like this band. There's sellouts. You know, there was this air of, yeah, if, you do, if you do X, you will be this and you're not punk and I'm more punk than you and this guy's a poser. So it was all just like, you know, I got to maintain the, I got to hold the punk front in order to, you know, <laughs> I guess, which is totally ironic. <laughs> well, that, that's my next, that was my, gonna be my question. Like, how do you, how does music get a pass with, uh, sorry, how does film get a pass with regards to like, I can be creative and artistic and make money with film, 
but with music, I have to, I have to Ian McKay it, you know, I have to. It's, it's an interesting question. I guess I just drew that line uh, out of convenience for my own narrative, you know, like I just told myself it's okay here, but my first sort of foray into film was commercial. So my cousin, Andy, and yeah, sure. It, nepotism is horrifically abundant in, uh, in that world. <clears throat> Excuse me. My cousin Andy uh, runs a production company in Toronto. And I'm like, oh, he's going to sign me. I showed him my thesis film. It's like, ah, it's a done deal. We're going to do this. <laughs> and then we watched my movie at his house, my, my thesis film. And he was like, oh, great work, Jonathan. But uh, too bad you got to pull cable for five years. And I was like, <laughs> fuck you, man. Like, you don't know. I'm going to go to the TIFF showcase. And I didn't do that. So, um, But he said, I'll get you one job. And the rest is up to you. And so the first job I got was a PA on a commercial set. So that's kind of how I saw things go up and then started learning like, oh, how much do these guys make to like not be a real director? Like I was watching dudes and I'm like, I know what I would say to get something more interesting out of this person. But this guy's just like sitting back barking, like high on Coke, like probably drunk. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. Oh my God. Um, Yeah. Dark, dark times. I came into it at the end of a very like I think wild, wild era of films okay. or commercial filmmaking anyway. Um, no, wait, sorry. When you say commercial filmmaking, you're saying for actual commercials because that's yes. where your bread. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's where I kind of saw my first real film set. That's where I saw like, you know, people working at that high level and I'm like, okay, it's, it's fine. And like, I could probably do this and be a little nicer about it and try and make that money that will then fuel, you know, an, an attention record or like whatever. It just felt like, there was more access to money that I could kind of like guilt-free receive. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of talking out of my ass because I haven't really examined why I drew that line. Because like, I would, I would consider like my personal film sacred too, but like commercials, like I'm there to serve, sadly, you know, a, a, an overarching brand or like an idea or other people's writing. So it's, it's a little more freeing and realistically i feel i feel like that's what everybody does they they go to a job they work so they can uh sustain their passion projects on the side right you're just in a fortunate position where you like your job and you get to create it your job whereas most people you know realistically we work construction we work in offices we work very few people have the 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 privilege or the luxury of doing something they love to make enough music, make enough music, make enough money that they can. Uh, so what I'm looking for, not provide. Yeah, to sustain can, it or to sustain, just, yeah, just, to yeah, afford like, to afford to cover the costs and whatnot on their passion, so that it doesn't, so that it stays a passion and doesn't become uh, a, a job. I guess. Yeah, it's it's wild and and kind of coming up through you know playing bigger and bigger cities and, and getting deeper and deeper into the DIY scenes, like in parallel with guys who did those jobs that, that worked as carpenters, as screen printers, as tree planters, yeah. as like weed grow up guys. Like it, and me, I'm just PAing and that, that paid really good. And I could be like, I'm not going to take this job because I'm going to tour for a month. But these other guys were like, I got to quit my job and then hopefully yeah. find it back. So like it's, it's actually nuts that I am in this situation. Mind you, like I only work like when I'm not 
doing this or like writing or whatever. Like I need something to do. I'm rarely just sitting. So I think a lot of my time isn't spent necessarily doing fun stuff or like relaxing, you know, or <laughs> well, I feel, I feel that time that I don't work on a construction site with creativity and like gen- trying to generate work for myself. Cause if I don't, then I will. So we, we have to go to. Yeah. We had a guest uh, on our second episode, Christian, and he's similar to you. He grew up playing in punk bands his whole life. Um, he wants to be a filmmaker. He has struggled his whole life and, you know, he's built sets, he's PA'd, he's produced, he's directed, he's acted, everything you can possibly imagine to keep doing what he loves. On the site, he still plays music, 100%. But similar to you, he, he, he still plays in the same band he played in 25 years ago. And he knows that the way life has gone, you know, they have, some of them have kids, some of them have careers, this and that. The band's never going to tour like crazy like before. They're, never, they're all in their 40s. They're all, he understands that. So he is similar to you in the fact that he goes, I'm never sitting still. Like I work all day. I come home. I write something. I, I talk to try and find funding. I do this. I do that. I do this. And it's just, it's, it's kind of funny to me because in talking to the people that we've talked to, you two are the only two who have said that. You know what I mean? There, there's, there's, a, there's a certain need for people to be busy. But you and Christian are both just like, I don't have downtime. Like my downtime is I'm doing something else for myself, which I think is great. Yeah, it it is good, I think, because it does, you know, afford me this lifestyle. But the anxiety, the the pressure that I'm sure Christian puts on himself as well, like it's it's not. Like I, I could see someone looking at my life and being like, man, like that'd be great. You know, work, work like a couple jobs every month and then, or like a job a month or even less and still sustain and still get to create. But like, I'm pitching on a job uh, later today, but like, if I don't get it, I'm unemployed indefinitely. Like, I don't know when my next job is. I worked last week and I don't know when my next job is. So like, we're deep into night drive season two. So when I'm not pitching, I'm like animating and trying to get that in Uh shape to try and get a broadcaster on board because if I don't do that then no one's going to pay attention to me because I got nothing to show for it and yeah it it goes so it's like the the bad analogy is the the shark that stops swimming you know it's like they they will die so how do you manage that stress is it just by keep doing what am I like how do you stay focused and not overwhelmed or paralyzed from the stress um it's not always the way like I am stressed and paralyzed a number of times, but like at this point I'm, I'm 38. I've been doing this professionally for 10 years. I've been PAing for, you know, five years before that and messing around. Like I've just kind of been in this state of like, I don't know what the hell is going to happen, uh, but I'm just going to keep doing what I do. So like in a way, my baseline is just that, you know, like I can barely, bend over and touch my toes because my muscles and fascia are so tense from just living that. But um, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to bubble over too much. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I've got a good sort of filter and like dreamer thing. Most of the, most of the meltdowns happen with my therapist and like my closest friends, you know? So um, it's, it's, it's just normal, I guess. That's why. 
So what have you learned in terms of skills? You know, you say something really interesting when you had that first meltdown in front of that student that you didn't know the steps into getting to where you are. And I think that's a really important part. You know, how, what are the steps? What, what's the sequence to getting good at something? Yeah, that's a really good question because I think I think there's a way in. I think, well, like to kind of keep tying this back to punk rock, like that there wasn't an industry where I grew up for that, you know? So we had to build it. So like I've kind of discovered at an early age, there's always a way in. It's not always clear or like even feasible, but you're like, hmm, there's a little crack in there, a little hole in that fence I can probably squeeze through, you know? Um, but I think just in any, anything, and, and I do kind of feel like maybe if I didn't play music, I'd been, in, I, I've gone to LA 10 years sooner and I'd be, I'd be in a Herald group at UCB right now or something, you know, like I, I'm like, damn, I wish I just kind of got into it earlier. But I think like just immersing yourself in anything creative, like will help you glean more skills to exist and more skills to cope and more skills to kind of like get you to where you want to go. But for music, yeah, it was just being around people that played music and then finding your way into bands. And then for film, just being around film sets and like, just being nice to people, making your intentions clear. Because uh, when I was PAing, yeah, I was touring a lot. So I, there's always like these sort of, there's two key PAs. The guys that like pick people, or pick the gear up the day before the shoot, then we go on the shoot and then we return it. And then there's a bunch of dailies who just go on, on set. And for the, I was always one of the key PAs. I got really lucky really quick, probably because of that East Coast, like farm boy kind of work ethic. <laughs> but um I would keep seeing this revolving cast of the other guy. Like this guy would be here for a couple months and he'd disappear and this next guy. And then I'm like, when am I going to disappear? Cause I'm going to go on tour one day and then this guy's not going to hire me, but no, he never stopped hiring me. And then he was like, Hey, you know, the camera's on the truck over the weekend. Why don't you make a spec spot? You know how to use the camera. Just take it off the truck and make a spec spot. Um, it's a nice. That was actually going to be my next question. Like, how do you go from, like while you, this whole time while you're being a PA and touring and playing in bands, do you find the time to make a better portfolio, create more films, create more? And then how do you, those get noticed? Yes. So I had a buddy who uh, I was doing a lot of work with and uh, he like bought a camera and was like, we're doing this, let's make some stuff. And just kind of made some weird spec spots that we wrote together. And then... Just sorry, what's a spec spot? Sorry. Oh, sorry. A spec spot is a commercial uh, with unsanctioned commercial. So, like, if you wanted to do a thing for like Mesa Boogie, you would like have Chris playing in front of a, a an amp, playing in front of an amp, and then throw a logo up at the end. You know, do something cool with it. Like, just basically okay, yeah. design a, a fake commercial to show you can do it. Uh, so we would just make up brands and like shoot stuff with our DSLRs and because we're always bringing like the wardrobe to a production company office or, you know, just being around execs. Like we started to just be like, Hey, check this out, check this out. And our production manager or a boss, Chad, um, he was really supportive and showed us, showed our work to the execs. And we ended up getting signed a couple of years later. We started doing like, um, just little jobs for agencies like they'd need like a mood video for like a video game teaser that they're making and I have okay. to go pull a bunch of videos from video games and cut them together okay. and then like slower like people eating granola bars on the street like street interviews kind of stuff and then slowly <laughs> kind of edging our way toward 
bigger and better stuff. But there was a period in there where I was doing a lot of stuff with agencies, but also PAing and needing to PA because I had no money. All this stuff we were doing was for free to like generate yeah, a portfolio. And then my Chad was like, sorry, man, uh, I can't hire you anymore. And I was like, uh, what? Hey, doggo. Um, I was like, what do you mean? You can't hire me. He's like, well, you're done. Like you're, you have to make the leap now. And I'm like, I, I can't make the leap. I'm broke. Like I, I, and he's like, well, you can't direct something for someone one day and then change the garbage for them the next, which is a terrible thing. But like in that world, especially the time where I was coming up through it, that's it. Like images, everything. If you, if, yeah, if I'm wearing gloves and touching a garbage bag, I'm shit. But if I'm, you know, asking someone a question, eating a granola bar on the street, I'm viable. So it was a, it was a weird, weird time, but I was broke for a while and I'm like kind of still paying for that um, financially, you know? Well, I mean, you know, being, being broke, trying to do what you love, that all harkens back to the punk rock and the DIY thing, right? It's true. And I could be like, yeah, I'll get this apartment with five people and we'll smoke indoors and, you know, (laughs) just like live it up. We've slept in many unfinished basements in our life. So, yeah. But that sounds very compassionate from this guy says, listen, uh, and tough love. I can't hire you anymore. You're, I know where you want to go. And if I keep hiring you, you're not going to go where you want to go. Yeah. Um, and if I didn't have that kind of clarity, if I didn't, you know, like just dive into this world and, and meet Chad, Chad Smith, shout out Chad Smith, not the drummer of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah. <laughs> um, if I, like it's it's the people too that you surround yourself with. Carrie too, the guy who uh, I was doing stuff with. Like they really kind of were like, dude, we could just do it. Like they showed me like you did punk like that, you can do film like that. And then to just kind of shake me and be like, now go go forth. I didn't expect to have that kind of guidance or that kind of like bravery or mentorship almost. Mentorship, yeah, like one hundred percent mentorship. And I owe him everything. I owe those guys so much for kind of ju- like kicking me out of this, like, okay, I'll, I'll just like sit in the back of the truck and, you know, I'll make spec spots, but I won't ask for anything. But they, they really taught me that asking and making your intentions known and just kind of believing that you can do it goes really, really far. Now, was this guy the person that your cousin put you in touch with? Or uh, was this further down no, the line? No, it was further down the line. So my cousin put me in touch with a production manager, uh, named Jeff and Jeff was an actor. Shout out Jeff Pangman. Um, and I got booked on another job with him a couple of weeks later. And then he booked an acting gig and got pulled off. And then Chad jumped in. And then from that day forward, like I was Chad's guy. Like, I don't know what it was. It was just this love at first sight thing. And then, I, like I said, there was that <laughs> revolving cast of other guys until Carrie came in there. And then it was just this sort of like rocket ship that happened. And we all kind of, Amazing. Yeah. And what was the time span between, no, you can't PA anymore and you're going to direct and you're going to make that leap? It's hard to judge, but I think that that started to happen around like, I'm trying to remember. We went on this, this around the world thing for a McDonald's job. And it was around there where it was like, I had 25 bucks on my bank account. No joke. Like that was my last 25 bucks. But wasn't that your commercial? It was my commercial. It, so it was murky because the guy who's in it was the tried and true director. Like he wrote the, the spot 
and like it was his thing. Okay. But because it was such a small crew and he liked me and because I was doing a bunch of stuff with him, like helping him with treatments and like uh, build a diorama for a pitch and like just be kind of in on his his career uptick. And uh, he liked me and Carrie so much. He's like, why don't you guys come around the world with me and we'll do this thing with just oh, us yeah. <laughs> and I'll give you guys a directing credit and then that will go for it. In, since, so it's been on my reel and it's been used to get me work, but uh, full disclosure since then, it's been like contentious whether or not we directed it truly, but I, I, I would claim uh, ownership over that work for sure. But not not just me, but the three of us for sure. Well, when you say contentious, like like, like people genuinely are like, contentious, yeah, like or? they won't, they wouldn't put it on my reel now, you know, because like they used it to kind of generate generate stuff. But now they're like, well, that's a Jeff spot or whatever. Anyway, anyway, it doesn't oh, it, okay. it doesn't matter. But like it's like internal public facing politics that I don't care about whatever I, I know what i did and it was amazing but that was around 2014 so like i think uh yeah i went around the world with 25 bucks in my pocket and got everything paid for and it was crazy and then it was another like i'd say probably two or three years after that of doing things that very much resembled that spot like more people on the street more like traveling just kind of getting in a bus stuff that kind of resembled touring to be honest um, and then I was kind of disenfranchised with that style of filmmaking because it's just documentary is cool, but not when it's about a granola bar, you know, I wanted to, <laughs> and I wanted to get into comedy and stuff. So I talked to my reps about like maybe making the jump and there was some like bad stuff that happened with like my, my partner didn't like, I was partnering with this guy, Carrie, and we kind of had a falling out when I moved and it was kind of a thing. And when you moved to LA? No, when I moved to narrative out of docu style, but I didn't oh, really exactly. want to make the narr- I didn't want to make the jump with both of us. I wanted to be like, you like doing this stuff. You're like an amazing people person. I want to go over here and make weird shit. <laughs> yeah, and that kind of drove a drove a nail in it. But yeah, it was it was a couple years. I'd say like a solid two or three years of like just getting by, like just barely getting by, and like massive credit card debt because that's what would spend. I would spend that on records and tours and. Yeah, and living van, in Toronto. Van repairs and living in Toronto. So how did you deal, you know, with in those three, four years, you know, that sense of safety of saying, you know what, let me just kind of find a stable job with a stable income. Screw this, you know, uh, living paycheck to paycheck or indebting myself for what? What kept that fire burning saying, no, I need to move forward. I need to get there. I think, I think cognitive dissonance big time. Like... Mm. Like I'd already said it, but at the same time, like all the guys around me were working more and harder than I was. And we're all just making the same amount of money and scraping by. So it's like, I could go and get a job at Astro with Glenn, but like, we're going to, we're going to be at each other's throats because we spend all day, every day together and then jam and then go in a van. But then I wouldn't have time to like do the other stuff. So it just, it felt like well, what the hell else am I going to do? You know, I don't, I, I just couldn't see myself in the more stable environment because it didn't seem to be any better than what I was doing, you know? Fair enough. And while you were doing this, did you see, I want to say forward momentum, but did you see like more interest in you? And so if you're, let me rephrase this. If you're traveling all the time, you're not shooting your own stuff on the side or were you? Uh, no. So I think like, 
Like you mean when I'm traveling with work or with yeah, like when you were saying you were doing the McDonald's thing, you had twenty five bucks in your pocket. You know, you said you you did the whole traveling documentary style thing for a couple of years, and then you're like, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to do my own thing, the weird shit. But what do you have to show people to be like? Well, you know, I can do this, but let me let me try this. Like, yeah, it. it <laughs> I really, I really didn't have much. I had a couple like weirdo shorts um, that I don't think got me anywhere. Like. I still make stuff like that. That's just like purely to make my friends laugh, you know, it's, <laughs> which is hard to reconcile because, you know, I have these people who are like, you know, you shouldn't, shouldn't post that because it makes you look silly or whatever. Like, and I'm like, well, like, you know, it's, it's, there has it, to be a balance. <laughs> there's yeah. Like people don't have to look at like what the, the, you know, couple hundred people that follow me are going to be like, that guy's a dummy. Like, no, <laughs> they're going to giggle because they follow me. Um, but, uh, I wasn't no like when I when I made that that sort of leap it was completely I think like I just got it on personality alone I don't know if I like had anything to show that got me my first thing yeah I think like I just convinced my reps to get me a job the first thing I ever did narratively in that professional context was like a free job with no money uh, even in the budget so it was like a very small thing that I was able to kind of jump into and, and play with without having like huge stakes. Fair enough. Um, now, if this is wrong, please correct me. But I remember very clearly because every single person that we know in common who knows you was talking about your Kit Kat ad with Chance. Yeah, that was, I think, the moment where I got launched into space. Like, in, in some sort of space, you know, like, cause I, I still, you know, every day I feel like I wish I was, you always wish you were a little further along, I of think. Um, but that was a crazy thing. Cause I started getting, uh, I, I did a bunch of stuff for KitKat before that and got to be a really good friend with the creative director um, who's still to this day, a good buddy. And we just kind of like had a little, little bit of a romance. Like it, it, it's, it's, it's interesting. Like it's like with bands and people you meet in the world too. Like you kind of just get in there and you, you have this little amazing creative session and then kind of go your separate ways. But um, I did a bunch of Kit Kat stuff with them. Very short, like kind of low budgety stuff. And then Chance was like just starting to like really, really pop. Like he was just on the, like just below the surface of, mm-hmm. uh, of the ocean before he, he like burst out onto the world. And uh, the creative director like knew that and he was like, he's got his ear to the ground. It's like, we got to get this guy in right now and then he's going to be huge and it's going to be amazing. And they just booked me on the job. I shot it. Um, it was your treatment too though, right? It, well, the, in commercials, they, uh, the scripts are already written. Um, okay. And then I come in and like add some flourishes and stuff, you know, and, and kind of translate that into performance and production design and whatnot. Okay. But it was it was intense. Like uh, I don't like I don't know. I there's a, there's this part of me that I don't feel like I'm great at first impressions for some reason. But I think that has more to do with me than uh, other people. So when I first met Chance, like they brought me over to the trailer, and I think he took a look at me. It was just like I was wearing like you know like skinny jeans and like an Emerson's T-shirt and like just you know covered in shitty tattoos from fucking North Sydney. <laughs> And I think he was probably just like, who's this guy? And one of his people came up to me uh, in the place we were shooting in this little, uh, this little like uh, corner store. 
And he's like, yeah, you know, and like, just kind of keep it quiet. Like, we keep the script. Like, Chance doesn't really want you to like, you know, throw ideas at him or whatever. Like, just kind of, we'll just, we'll just stick to the script. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, cool, cool, cool. And then I'm like, I walked up to Chance and I'm like, hey man, do you mind if I like throw some ideas at you? And, uh, <laughs> just like, you know, I'll throw stuff. You don't have to repeat them. You can say yay or nay. And uh, totally up to you. And he's like, yeah, we could do that. And most of that stuff is what the spot is. Like it's these little riffs that he and I were doing back and forth. Oh, right. Um, and he was super, like I, he was, like I said, reticent at the beginning. But once we got riffing, he was like, all right, this guy's funny. And the spot looked really good. And yeah. And then after that, I like went to London. I had just signed to a company in London. And I, just, I literally wrapped that job, got on a plane, flew to London. And I was there for like two months shooting other stuff. And then it, it yeah, from there on, it just started steamrolling. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> Which is funny. So when was that? 2016? Six, 2016. It was like October 2016, I think. Or so, September. So now we're in 2022. And not even 15 minutes ago, you were like, I don't know where my next job's coming from. Yeah. Well, that's every job. Like, again, like I worked last week, so it's fine. But again, I might not. I might not. I might never work again. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, don't, I have a few friends in show business and, you know, there's no guarantees in show business. <laughs> no. Even the people who are like killing it right now. I mean, in commercials, I think the people who are killing it's a different level of killing it. But like in the film world, people who are killing it are still just like, yeah, I hope I get renewed or like, I hope I get called back for the show or it's not, it's not a, it's not a cushy lifestyle for the most part. Well, so here's my next question. You write, you direct. Did you ever have any aspirations of being an actor? I know you act, but I mean, just exclusively being an actor. No, I think that, like, I just think I, the way I sort of see myself in the world, I'm more of a supporter than a, than like the person up front. Like, mind you, like, I've, covered in tattoos I obviously like have issues with like wanting people to see me and 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 whatnot but um I just always got more satisfaction out of watching other people because when I watch myself it's a bit like I I know the internal process I know what I'm really thinking in that moment I'm, I'm I'm bad at fooling myself in that regard mind you I've done an insane amount of acting education like I've been through the gamut of Second City in Toronto did a whole bunch of UCB oh, yeah? in LA. Um, went to workshops all the time. Like I'm constantly studying, but it's only to, and, and acting and, and doing it, but it's only to better my toolkit and better my communication skills with actors. Because, you know, yeah. you can say like, you know, smile when you eat the hamburger, but like, how do you, how do you make that playable for someone who has to smile and eat a hamburger, right? Like, it's, uh, it all plays into it. But I, yeah, I had to act in my feature because I couldn't ask, someone to work for free for 30 days, you know? Yeah, I, I get that. But I mean, you and your partner worked for free for 30 days but because it was... Because it was project. ours. We, yeah. had, we had all the skin in the game, you know? So it, it made the most sense. And then it was just kind of less work. In, in a way, it was less work for me because I could just sort of execute what was inside of me. But then later on, it was more work for me because I have to sit through the edit and I have to like work with my editor who sees 
who sees me definitely differently than I see myself. And we kind of had to battle like and smooth out my performance so that he's happy and I'm happy. And I can, I, I still like, I, I can barely watch the movie because I'm a lot of emotions tied up with it. But, uh, of course. But I mean, does, does that tie into, are you like for myself, I have a really hard time listening to records I'm on, especially where I sing. I don't know if you're like that or when you're in the studio and the engineer like uh, isolates your voice and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I sound like this. This is terrible. I, I, I used to be like that for music, but I don't know. I think I like, once I started doing it, doing it, doing it and like, I, I think I just sat in the in the saddle more and I can listen to myself sing all day and like it's, nice. it's weird I wish I had that kind of uh, acceptance for film stuff or like my acting because um, I probably have a much more fun time in post in that regard but yeah I don't know it's weird I never really had that problem with music huh. so I wonder maybe, if it's if it's something sorry I didn't mean to cut you off go ahead maybe like if I listened to something I did in high school right now I'd be like oh, but like you know <laughs> I throw on attention or like no bridge or Atlas and I can listen to those songs. Maybe because they do kind of put me back to those very innocent, amazing times, you know? Dude, that downer song is so good. Thanks, pal. No problem. And I'm sorry, go ahead, Deep. I'm just, I'm just going to kiss John's ass for a second here. Oh, do it. Honestly, Atlas gets played in this house in either in my car, or Stephanie's car, or the house once a week, at least. I think the like the Quebec Montreal crew are like the the Atlas like fan base. Like that's where all the yeah. plays come from. It's the place where we hit it in, in upstate New York. <laughs> or I guess Long sense. Island. Long, Long Island. Island. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks, man. That that was an awesome project. Like Nathan and Pete and I have been playing. Like that that was our high school band. There was like one other guy in our high school band. Um so like we kind of psychically communicate. It's really weird and stuff just kind of comes out. And Nathan is Nathan and Peter both just insane. They're like annoyingly good at what they do. And yeah. And I honestly have to say, I don't know many, I'm not even gonna say musicians, people who communicate as clearly as you, Glenn, and Nathan. The three of you together, it's it's like one hive mind. Yeah, it can be. I'm sure I'm sure it can be I'm sure it's the opposite of times as well. But from yeah. an outside perspective and just watching you guys with all the bands you've been in together and the 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 level, the quality of the output, it's just like fuck. I think we we complement each other really well. Like Nathan is this like brooding genius who just like shits gold and like I have a good way of like kind of pulling that out and 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 kind of riffing with it and then be a Glenn on drums or being a singer or whatever. He's just a bulldozer to like be like, all right, world, uh, who's got shows? Let's go. Let's go. Tour, tour, <laughs> yeah. tour, tour, tour. So it just kind of like it worked really well um until it didn't. It didn't. Of course. I don't think it I guess it never didn't work well. They just like we all just grew up, you know? And, and they, life, cha- life changed, man. Did, yeah, exactly. No, but I mean, life changed. Nathan went to BC, then back out east. Scott went out east. Out I guess. east, yeah. Um, Glenn went out east. Lockie went to Kingston for a while, yeah. and then he went back out east. Yeah. You know, it's it, it's life. Yeah, it was cool though, like to come here on my own and develop a scene of my own of film people, and then have all my band friends come up, and then have a decade of just like getting to know the city through music. And yeah. then, then they left, which was super sad, but they're all living awesome lives now. So That's true. Tivo, I, I totally cut you off before. What were you, you going to say? 
Well, I, I was actually curious, going back to the commercial, what makes for a good commercial? Ooh, so many things. Uh, like, I'm, I'm a comedy guy, so like, I can only really speak to that because that's really like all I see. For me, it's good writing. Like, that's what makes a good commercial. Good writing, and then you team up with a good director, and you're you're just laughing. Um, so you would know from the script if it's a good commercial? 100%. I mean, it, I would know from what the script does in my mind. You know, like what, what kind of sparks are, are flying up and like hitting my brain and, and communicating. And like, because if I start having ideas immediately, it's just like, oh shit, this is really, really good. And uh, generally they don't have money. Like in Canada, the, the really awesome out there scripts never get money because they're risks. They're like, mm-hmm. we have a very small population. Um, you, you're not going to find that sort of niche market of whatever weirdo shit. Because like, I'm, I'm, I do kind of skew pretty out there, I think, especially in recent <laughs> times. Um, so those would have no money. So I wouldn't get paid for those jobs. I would completely invest my time. But in that, in that same way, the, the currency becomes my ability to take ownership and get in there and do more writing and like massage it and flesh it out and maybe be a little more like, no, no, let's, let's do my way. Whereas if I'm getting paid, it's like, okay, what, what, what would you like? Um, but in the States, like those, those jobs, the jobs tend to be way more creative and insane, like on average and actually have money to do it. So it's been a bit of a struggle breaking into there. So you know? what happens when you get a script and nothing happens inside you? No sparks? So you're like, blah. You, you got to still... It depends. Because like sometimes you get a script and you're like, you know what? Like I would love to make make money, but like I know what this is going to be. It's just going to be a lot of like sort of beating your head against the wall and like talking about the, the Pantone of green for the logo or whatever. And sometimes it's great. And like sometimes it won't be amazing creative and really nice people, like a nice client or a nice creative agency. And it's like, yeah, screw it. We'll do it. But in that case, you do just, you have to find a way in uh, to, to bring it back there. Like you, you just got to spend more time looking for that spark and like go for a longer walk or like mm-hmm. spend more time staring at the cursor blinking. Because mm-hmm. um, if you don't, that's when I'm like, I, I don't think I can pitch. Like I would have to walk away from the job and because um, it's not fair to waste someone's time or your own. But sometimes you're like, I want the money. So frigate, I'll, I'll, I'll find a way in. And, yeah, yeah, and the way in, maybe, because you like the people you work with, or you like That's the it. agency, you like uh, the product, or whatever it is. For sure. And then, or it's maybe like, oh, there's this new piece of technology I could bring into this and maybe experiment a little bit and elevate my skills and experience on that thing, like mm. a techno crane or like an LED screen or something like that. That's So I'm always kind of like, I'm, I do get boards that are outside of that niche like, um, comedy, like weird kind of stuff, and and like serious, like normal, regular commercials that are blasting in my mom's living room when the kids are in there and we're cooking dinner, you know. Um, and those are fine too, but uh, it's it's nice to be able to straddle that. But sometimes it's hard to like. Sometimes I'll get an, a job that's like, oh, this could I do find a way in. It's a little you know normal or whatever, but um, they look at my reel and they're like. This guy's a psycho. Like, why would why why do we want this guy on our job? We can't do this. Like, there's no yeah. Anyway, so it's it's tough. 
if you don't have a hamburger on your reel, it's hard to get a food commercial. Like I've never shot a car commercial because I don't have a car on my reel. And not that I'd want to necessarily. Which, which but, is unfortunate because I think you could cope with some crazy shit for a car commercial. Well, it's it's nuts. Like I'm not to go too far down this road, but I'm trying to like I've been exploring how the, how the hell am I going to break into TV? Like I really want to break. I want to start directing episodic and, and features and stuff. And like because I've been working in commercials for so long, they don't translate into that world. Even though it's just like it's all performance, it's all like skill stuff. I have short films and a feature under my belt. It's just like the main uh, resource in your bag is commercials. And therefore, they don't translate to this longer form thing. So it's like, that's really difficult. But then even within commercials, it's all sliced down into these little tiny parts. And, and you're constantly trying to adjust your box to, to fit in with, with these things. And it's nuts. Yeah. But then you might get a commercial that has a car in it that has no money and a really good script. And then you're like, boom, let's invest. And then all of a sudden, I have a car on my reel or I have a hamburger on my reel or whatever. Well, it's it's funny because oh, I can never remember the name of this movie. I think Paul Reiser was in it. I think, and he was an ad executive who just gets completely fed up of being an ad exec, and so he has to do a pitch for a Volvo. And I don't know why this popped in my mind because when I said you could do something crazy for a car ad, this just popped into my mind because I remember seeing the movie in my teens and just laughing my head off when I saw it. And you know all these like white older men are sitting there big wigs like no 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 and he's like yeah here's the ad for the bowl and pulls off the the part the piece of paper in front of it and shows the ad and it's like it's got a guy standing there with this super hot woman and it's like driving a volvo increases your chances of getting a blowjob it's so funny <laughs> in my head i'm like yeah i can see jonah doing something like way out of the box not to that extent but i mean just something absolutely absurd and some big wigs at a car company are like is this a joke? Is this guy for real? Yeah. Why did they put that on his reel? Yeah, yeah. That's funny. It makes me think of like Putney Swope, uh, that Robert Downey Sr. movie, when the guy just comes in and takes over an ad agency and completely just like, it goes wild. It's a really good movie. Putney um, Swope. Yeah. Hmm. Check it out. Classic I imagine insane. in your line of work that you would could look at TV and say, wow, that's a great commercial. Yeah, mostly I yeah, there there are times that I do that and cuz like there are people that I do admire like there's some really amazing directors that are working in commercials and guys that have like kind of uh mentored me as well. So it's awesome to see those and you're like, "Wow, this looks amazing. Like why aren't these guys right like doing movies and TV and stuff?" But mostly when I see a commercial, I'm just like I'm thinking of the treatment lines. Like I'm like, oh, I bet I know what the intro was and like what their way in was, and like you know, I, I'm I'm kind of seeing the the artifice of it all. But when when I'm like, wow, that was good. It's it's a really nice feeling because it feels like people are doing cool stuff, you know. And are commercials evolving? I mean, is there like a changing in terms of how to pass the message? I guess. Um. Yeah, they're getting shorter. Um, definitely so when getting I, shorter. When I and and the aspect ratio is changing too. So when I started in PAing, the main part of the budget was going. It was just a TV commercial. And then when I was like starting to do that, like trainee, like shoot shoot the behind the scenes stuff, like kind of moving my career forward. There was the TV component that got the bulk of the budget, and then there was the viral shoot 
this was like, you know, uh, late, late zeros, 2000s. Um, and that would be the web content. And they would do like 10 web videos plus one commercial. So I would start getting these web videos, and, but they would have no money. They would just be like an afterthought. Mm-hmm. And then when I started getting prof- more professional and like my career uh, moved forward and, and so did time, the line between the TV and the web is blurred. So the budget's just kind of like met in the middle. And now the budgets are significantly like lower. There's still like a lot of money, but like in terms of what the industry was used to, the budget shrank and then the the distribution became murky. So it's some of it's for TV, most of it's for web. You're kind of, you are constrained to 30 seconds, 15 seconds, but you're kind of not because if someone watches a, a YouTube video for more than 15 seconds, it means you did a good job and like... Uh-huh. So what that means, now the branding is packed into the first five seconds. So that's why you, like, when you get that ad, you get the little countdown. The branding and the message has to be in those first five seconds. Mm. Um, we tend to have to shoot for 16.9, which for those unfamiliar, it's like a widescreen format like we see now. Uh, we have to shoot for that. We have to shoot for the square, which would be like the regular Instagram Post and then we have to shoot for vertical, which is nine sixteen, which is like your Instagram, Facebook stories, and you don't really get the time to shoot all three of those because the composition is going to change within each frame, right? Like you can't just hose it down, mm-hmm. lest it all be wide shots that you're kind of moving around and repositioning and post. So there's a lot of demands for that, and and like TikTok spots are coming out now, and like we'll we'll get briefed on a, a TikTok trend that's happening now, we'll shoot in a month and it'll be released in two months. So that trend is already gone and it's people trying to like catch up. Catch up and it's it does feel like flailing, but um you know it's it's just kind of naturally happening and I've been seeing it just 30 seconds, 15 seconds, six seconds, three seconds. I'm it's gonna be hard to tell a story in three seconds uh, yeah. when everyone is doing it exclusively, you know? Yeah. Um, in the 2000s, uh, you're talking about the web work and this and that. You know, did you ever work with Sam? Sutherland? Sam? No, no, I haven't. I haven't. Because um, he, he was one of the first people that I knew personally who went heavily into the visual aspects, like the, the filmmaking of sorts. Is that, I don't know if that's the right word, but you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. He, he, well, Sam was making like amazing, like, MT like MTV heyday era style TV shows like yeah totally talk show night at the juice box manor garage land garage land and and this is this exists uh, and also extremely online which they I think they just did a second season of Uh, we never crossed paths in that world Uh, but I don't know what I don't I I don't want to say too much but uh, he he, Justin and uh, our friend Mike and I are working on something really cool right now. Oh hell yeah, that's awesome! Yeah, we got a, We got a very very cool um, Canadian pitch, and I mean that in a in a really good way. I think we have a cool angle on this thing. So we are we are working together now. But um, amazing! Yeah, please tell me I said hi. I haven't spoken to him yeah. in a while. Well, um, so I'm going to come back to the Canadian aspect of this in a second. But is this may sound like a really dumb question, but is commercials the end game or is a feature making feature films the end game? I think I've been asked that a lot, both from other people and myself. And what I'm trying not to like do is call it an end game. I don't mean to like bat that down, but like I think that like there is no end game as long as I can 
keep creating. So I don't want to stop doing commercials because they're super fun and I've met a ton of amazing people and I got paid good money to do it. But I do want to go over to episodic. I want to I want to shoot an episode of like pretty hard cases and then I want to shoot an episode of of Dave, you know, and then I want to come up here and do an amazing commercial for I don't know, I don't want to say a brand, but like, you know, some important yeah. brand with with a with a really popular with Mike Myers or like, you know, someone cool. Like, I don't know. Yeah. So I also want to make my own features and I want like I'm in full swing of uh, production and post-production. We're kind of shooting it in blocks of Night Drive season two. So like, I want all this stuff to hit. Like I want it all to do it. I, I just want to be able to do it. But if I had to choose and I could have both options, it would be like creating my own TV series and, and movies for sure. Okay. Because my, my question led towards um, Chad being like, you're done as a PA, take the leap. Is that a thing that happens in film where it's like, Okay, the commercials, you're doing really well. You've kind of hit the glass ceiling on the commercials. You need to do TV or you need to like I, I don't I know nothing about the film industry in that regard. So that's no, I think I think because like there's still some dudes that are doing it that are so old and like not who they were back in the day doing commercials. Um so I think I think you can have a pretty long career in there. Um but I do feel like the way the industry is going and like the way technology is going, like in my psychotic mind, it's like, okay, Neuralink becomes a thing. And now we're doing ads that are just like in your brain. Like, I'm not going to be able to do that. Like if that's what, that's, that's, that's the kind of content they're created. Like, I don't, I don't think I want to go down that road. So like it, that's, that's where, that's the glass ceiling for me when like technology surpasses my ability to understand it. Um, but yeah, I'd love to have that ceiling and then be like, all right, TV time. But again, it's really hard to make the leap, you know? And I hope, I hope I don't hit that ceiling because it, it'd be fun to, to do like one big commercial a year and then a couple episodes of TV for someone else and then be able to make my dumb cartoon. Well, yeah, of course. But I mean, I, I don't think there is a glass ceiling for commercials while there's still events like the Super Bowl. And they're paying like massive superstars bajillions of dollars for a 30 second ad. You know what I mean? Like, and they're getting famous directors to direct commercials and this and that. Excellent I just point. didn't know. Yeah. Like, I just didn't know if for you personally, if there was a point where you're going to be like, okay, I need to stop doing this and like just make the leap. And there's a difference between funding your own feature film. Yes. And 100%. having someone like Tebow and I have a friend, uh, this guy, Danny Del Purgatorio. He's similar to you. He's a creative director for a couple, uh, for um, he's been for a creative director for a couple marketing companies, and he does commercials as well. And he does he makes his own short movies. He loves horror movies and trauma yeah. movies, so he does that. And he's won awards for this and that. But he has been trying shit five years to get funding to make his first feature, and he just can't do it. And he's got three kids. And he's like, I can't put everything I have into this. He goes, I want to. He's a punk like us. He played in bands and this and that. He's like, yeah. but I have a family. I have responsibilities. I can't take the chance on this and ruin all of our lives. And and that's such a like a harsh reality for most people. Like I'm, you know, have very little responsibilities in that regard. <laughs> but you know, I yearn for it, and you know, it feels 
like maybe I'll always be alone because I'm just so into my creative endeavors. But it, it, it's it comes down again to that population that Canada has. Like we can't sustain these. Like you know what? I'm going to give this guy a chance. He made some cool horror shorts. Like I'm just going to chuck a million bucks at him and see what he can do for this little bottle contained horror up up north in Quebec or whatever. Like we don't have those kind of chances here. Everyone's going after the same French fry in the parking lot. Like every, every seagull is just swarming it and, and there's <laughs> yeah. not enough. There's not enough to feed us all. Whereas in the States, you hear these like kind of stories of someone took a chance or like someone got, you know, an investor or whatever. It's just, it's really fucking hard here. And again, even for me, who's, you know, on paper, very successful in, in commercials, I can't get anything made. Visitors, I tried to get made as a movie. Uh, the graphic novel Visitors, since I wrote it in 2010 and I applied, I applied to Canada Council like a million times, but like just kept changing the name and like minor details. Cause I'm like, there's no way these guys are digging much deeper and just like making better cases about like the social commentary I'm trying to do or whatever, flesh out the universe. Um, it, I almost came close to making it, getting some private funding at one point, but it just never came into fruition. And then I'm like, well, I have all this concept art. Um, maybe I'll ask my friend, Mike, if he wants to, turn it into a comic with me and we did and the idea was to just kind of seed that into waiting rooms at production companies and post houses and then maybe like a young filmmaker would flip it see this like one-off single issue comic and be like i want to make this into a short and then do it that way but i just needed to get it out of my head and into the world and i found the way in through a graphic novel but that's after 10 years of trying to fucking get it made for real and failing so uh, as a segue, is that can we turn that over to the record label? Sure. Because you know, there's that whole <laughs> time <I'm>, of failures. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, dude, I I, I put out the horses prevention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, yeah, my, you, you, my, my yeah, label, yeah, I get you know it. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like it's so hard. But uh, you know, it's. I don't know if you ever went after anybody to put out your records for you. I know Stephen help put out your records, uh, struggle town in Scotland. Um, yeah. I put out the horses split, but aside from that, everything else you guys did was your own, wasn't it? I think so. And I, I, I don't know, like, cause I was never the sort of like connection guy with the bands. Like I was, you know, like the writer and the kind of like, not, not soul writer, but like that was more in that field. And Glenn was sort of like the, the, the public facing, piece of the band so like i don't know who they were talking to i just knew that we weren't getting anything and i think like if like if we didn't do it who the fuck else would but like we got we had we are attention's first ep got put out by someone who like oh it was dan no uh it was greg it was uh greg labeled greg and mike had labeled records um and they put it out but then okay. they just didn't do anything and yeah. seemed to like, I don't know. I, 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 I don't want to speculate beyond my own neurosis, I guess. But like, I was like, maybe they just thought we sucked or like, you know, they put the record out and regretted it or whatever. But like, I know now from running must be nice. It's like, you can only do so much as the band's going to do. So like you can, exactly. you can invest money in it. The band's not like, taken off or people aren't the band's not resonating with people it's not on the label to do that it's up to you so yeah there's there's that expectation that you know people sign people put out records on a label 
and the label is going to do everything for the band. No. And it's no, it's not feasible, especially not in these times. Yeah. It's, it's do you, 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 you do the legwork and I'll, I'll take 10% or 20% when you, when you kick it, when you hit it, right? Like it's, that's kind of the mentality. And in film too, like that's, that's the thing. It's hard to have anyone take a chance on you. But it's, 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 I think that's more to do with the audience and like what, what, what kind of stuff I was producing anyway. I also think it's, it's money, right? Like, you know, pressing a 500 records, it's going to cost you a couple thousand bucks. And if they sit in your closet, that sucks. You know, the yeah. band breaks up, whatever. Fuck, I remember going, I don't know why we were in, I was in Toronto. We were playing a show after Horses had broken up. And you guys played, what, two shows after we released the split and then broke up? Yeah. And you're just like, fuck. And I was like, fuck me. <laughs> We we put out a band who like we chased them for a while and we did a co pro with them and paid for Pete like this is we're like this is the band that's gonna get us going and uh, they're gonna be amazing like they're an amazing band like really cool people which band uh, uh, Lonely Parade okay don't know them. I mean I know them from their late they they were in Montreal I believe via Peterborough or something like that but like okay. super super cool uh like I don't know I I. At the time, I don't think anyone was doing anything quite similar to them. They just sort of amalgamated all these different sounds and they were like so confident and like, it was awesome. But so they were on uh, Buzz and we were, then they were like, we want to, like Glenn reached out to them and they're like, we want to do vinyl, but like Buzz isn't sure. And then we reached out to Buzz and then they're like, let's just go splits. And we did. Yes. And I don't think they played one show. Like, I, I think that maybe they played one show. And, like, that was that. And I haven't talked to any of them since. Like, I reached out to try and... We were doing a compilation a couple months later, and they just never wrote back. And I'm like, man, I, I hope I hope y'all are okay if you're, for some weird reason, listening to this. Um, I love your band. Are they still a band? No, they broke up. Like, oh, okay. They, they just- did that one show, and then... I don't know. Maybe they play in other bands now, but what was your intention in doing the record label? Uh, again, it was like a service to like all my other stuff, just kind of scratching itch. Like no one else was coming, coming forward to be like, Hey, let's put out your records. So we need to have a little thing to put in the corner. Cause that's what you do. And that's what we always did growing up too. We would just yeah, like totally. have a, have a fake, I think shamefully the first one that I thought of was uh, Penal Thrust Records. <laughs> I was putting up my, Dude, my, my, my band in high school. My first band was called Flaccid, and yeah. our, and our <clears throat> record label was called Smegma Records. <laughs> right. So you know, it was just that thing because like you get the flyers, like you see the bands you listen to have a certain aesthetic, and there's a thing in the corner, and you just want to put the thing in the corner. So that's what that became. And then I think must be nice though. Glenn was using that moniker as like a booking sort of thing. And uh, he, I, we ended up putting out, I think the first thing we released was the Attention LP, LP with like yeah. 700 other labels. Um, <laughs> so we all, we all had to pay like very little money. But, um, and then it just kind of became like, oh, well then let's put this out. Let's put this out. Let's put this out. Let's put this out. And basically like any of my friends that are like, hey, can you help me put out this record? I do it. Like I'm going to help Emmett O'Reilly put something out in the next little while. Nice. Um, we a just bunch put all out, of Roy's projects. <laughs> yeah, well, Trout, like Roy, man, like super prolific, and always, always kind of dancing around with Maddie. Um, 
and who else did we just put out? Oh, Grand Forward, uh, Peter Tomaszewski's uh, solo project, ex uh, peace, peace Be Still guy. Oh, cool. Um, unbelievably cool, vibey acoustic stuff. Um, so it still it still exists. Like I'm never gonna like shut it down necessarily, but you know it's always there to help. But like it just sucks that of all the all the work we did, all the all the places we went to, all the all the the people we met, like we didn't build a little bit bigger of an audience to help sustain that. So the people who are still playing, like I wish I could still kind of like have the label doing okay or something. It would probably become overwhelming really quick, but in my very idealistic, uh, non-complicated world, it would still be doing stuff and it would still be helping like younger people making music, you know? And like just being a thing that's not like, well, if you want to leave, you got to give me 10 grand because I invested all this. It's just like, <laughs> the, our logo was like a person dumping a sack of money into a hole. Yeah, like, I, I know. <laughs> it's, it's just like, we're not doing it to do it, you know? We're, we're not doing it to make it, we're doing it to do it. So it's like, I wish I wish that we had amassed a bit more of a an audience for that. And it could just sort of... I mean, you just not, said you Not still that we put- didn't, not that we didn't. It, I don't mean to describe discredit what we did but like you know what i'm saying no, no, you're dead broke or whatever you know yeah but i mean yeah. you're still putting out records true so i mean you're still going and that's more than most labels true but what i what i mean is that i wish that like so if roy puts out a record like if roy puts out a trout ep that must be nice would carry some cachet to help roy get something else out of it you yeah, know but, other than just john i love you but you put out bands that don't tour <laughs> that's also bands that don't exist. And, that's you know, also true. I mean, how many shows did well, Atlas play? Nine. Yeah, it's true. How many we, shows the small towns played? Uh, Nathan's played a lot, but yeah, but like out east, out east, in the most isolated conditions. Yeah, completely fair. Completely, you know. Fair. And, I mean, and it's easy are, to forget that because you're. And like, those are oh. two of my favorite records, and I think I've bugged you a lot about playing Atlas shows or doing a vinyl of Atlas, and it's you, true, and and. Like, yeah, I'm like, oh, no one wants to put our stuff out. I'm sure you asked, but then, like, there was just a thing in the, like, you know how life is, and it's just, yeah, it's absolutely. Nebulous. Yes. But, like, I have learned, and, and especially during the pandemic and stuff, and I went back home for a while just to kind of reset and uh, started playing again with Nathan and Albert, who uh, we started a band, called, a band called Planter, which we have a couple, like, sketchy recordings, but uh, we still have some stuff we want to put out. Um, but it was like, you know what, like, Albert Albert lives in the middle of nowhere with no internet at his place, like wood stoves and either end of the house kind of thing. Like really wow. cool, like ex draft dodger shack in the woods thing, but like okay. with nice amenities, just no internet. And he's, we were just talking. He's like, yeah, man, I just, I just like to have people over and record. Like I want to have my friends over and record and like drink some beers and eat some food. And that's the life I want to live and be with my wife and my son. And I was just thinking like, damn, that's like kind of what we've been doing. Like, I still listen to their bands and they still listen to my bands. And like, we had just sort of amassed this, this pile of, of sonic creativity for ourselves, you know? And like, it's, it's kind of like, again, to go back to like the making money and stuff, it's unscathed by money or expectation or other people's expectations or anything. It's just kind of ours. And it's really cool to, to know, like if I make another no bridge EP, like Nathan and Albert and Pete and Glenn are gonna, are gonna like it. And like Mark, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah. Very grateful for it. 
and kind of changed my tone from, I wish we did more to like, I'm really happy we did what we did when we did it. In listening to you talk and everything you do, it's overwhelming how much you work on different projects. When you say that at the beginning of this talk that uh, you get nervous if you don't do anything, clearly you show us how much you do throughout the day, but you're fueled by creativity. Everything you do, it seems, is just you know to create something in a very concrete way. Can you go into this whole creative process internally? what it looks like or what it feels like to you. It's probably different from music to commercials to it's yeah. I don't know. It's almost like it's hard to quantify because like music, I don't think was unlocked until like I heard music that I liked, you know, like smash or dookie or something comes out and you're like, Oh, like what's this? And it like, scratches this deep part of your brainstem that you didn't know existed and like sparks all this other stuff. Like I think it's more like I just get inspired by things a lot and I have a lot of ideas, like a lot of like as cheesy as it sounds, I guess like I'm kind of a natural improviser where I'm like yes handing everything I see or like I see a funny thing and I'm like it'd be funnier if it did this or if this is true, what else is true kind of thing. And the only way to like share it or like really examine it is to pull it out and, and, and make it a physical thing, right? So be that film or, or music. So I think it's like kind of pulling the stuff out of my head to take a look at it and, and be like, what is this? Or like, maybe it's to um, show people stuff. Because I, I, like I was saying in the beginning, I don't know if it was before we, we started or not, but growing up in like a, a kind of a rough town, like I was scared a lot growing up. Like I, I was you know, not a, I was an only child. So I haven't been like beat up by older sisters or brothers and like, didn't really know how to navigate conflict in any way. So my way to avoid that was to, to first be funny. And then when I started playing in bands, like I was one of the few people playing in bands that put on shows, which is what everyone did. So if I got beat up, it would be like, you're beating up the, the entertainment for the night. So <laughs> I think a lot of sort of finding my identity through the ideas I have became that and I got to look at it in that regard. But like, I don't know. I think I always just had this compulsion to like, to do it. And I, I think it's to get people to like me. Like it, it's a weird, a weird story just popped into my head that I haven't thought about in, in ages. When I was growing up, I had uh, a, a very beautiful babysitter named Laura. And she asked me if, I, like, I think it was like the first night that she came over. And like, uh, she asked me if I had a Nintendo and I didn't, but I was like, yeah, hold on. And I like went upstairs for like two hours and like, like drew a screen of like Mario and like made the, the cords for the controllers and like used like, my dad had all these National Geographic, uh, like anthology things or like these leather sleeves for like five, five of the issues. And then, you know, they span however many years or whatever. Uh, like using those as the TV and like the console and did that stuff. And then I'm like, okay, I got it set up. And then she came in and was like, oh, like the reaction wasn't like, <laughs> you loser. It was just like, that's so sweet. You did that thing. And I'm like, oh, like creativity gets you girls sick. Like, this is great. <laughs> you know? So maybe that had something to do with it. Cause like later on too, like I would like wear, you know, ripped up jeans and stuff and do the, the, uh, the right stuff dance, the new kids on the block, like the, oh, oh, oh. 
like I do that dance and it's a part, it's like, all that I wanted was you. And like, I'd like point to her, you know, and like, I get like a rise, like she would like clap along and smile. And I'm like, I'm getting positive attention. This is great. So like, maybe that's a thing. Like really early on, I'm like, oh, if I just like put myself out there and like do creative fun things, I'll, I'll get friends and no one will beat me up or hurt me ever. <laughs> well, luckily for you, it manifested into something like positive and balanced. <laughs> Yeah, because, yeah, with the wrong wrong kind of guy, the wrong kind of experiences that could go a really terrible way. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think it is attention-seeking behavior. I think it's like that feeling of being a snowflake and not feeling like you really belong anywhere and uh, trying to find out where you belong through doing whatever the fuck comes to your mind, I guess. I don't know. It's really, yeah, it's interesting to try and explain it because like, it's hard, you know? Has anyone else been able to explain that? Like why they do anything, you know? I don't know, but I know there are significant moments, like you say, with that babysitter or, you know, we could even go when you listen to, uh, was it Dookie or Smash the first time? I mean, what that created you. Yeah. Like, what did you, what? It's a, it reminds me the first time I heard Appetite for Destruction, I was... I was what, probably nine years old or something. I was scared. Yeah. It was terrifying. You look at the, the cover of the CD and you see these guys and then you imagine all sorts of things. And uh, it was a really important moment. Yeah. I could see that for sure. And like, I think that there was something about punk that was scary that was a little more sort of forward and like toothy than I was used to being this like very passive, very don't hurt me, don't don't get me in conflict kind of kid. But so there was this aggression to it and there's this also sort of soft melodic edge and then there's also the like, you know, the poo-poo pee-pee stuff that, you know, you're just like, wow, this is kind of like the way into like being cool and like I can get up there and be really rough, but I can also do a fart joke between songs or whatever. And then just like being able to get out whatever thing it was. Like I remember I used to have one of those CD players that had the speakers that come off the sides, you know, like you could slide them <laughs> off and put them around your room. Yeah. But I would just slide them ever so slightly to the right and left. And then you have that console in the middle and I would put on, you know, uh, Dude Ranch or, or Dookie or Smash or, or Life in General. I'd crank it and plug in my bass and play along to it and then just sing into the console and have the speakers just blasting here and being able to just like sing really, really loud along with it and like just feel everything. It just like made my being resonate in some crazy way that I'm just like, oh, like this is like power. I feel powerful and I feel like myself and I feel like I'm not only excising this sort of weird rage that every teenager feels, but I'm like being funny and I'm being like melodic. And it's just, it felt like I was tapping into something scary, but something quite beautiful. And it, yeah, completely, completely changed my life. And at the same time, you were doing something. And and you're being creative. Yeah. Like, so yeah, it's, it's strange. It's actually kind of, you know, I've already said it and like I, I have thought about music like that in a long time where it's like I don't want to taint it, but I'm kind of surprised with the sort of the, the potency of that drug at such an early age um, right. didn't spur a very, 
very deep desire to do that. But yeah. See, it's funny for me. I was probably, I was probably a little older than TiVo. Like he discovered Guns N' Roses. I discovered, you know, I, I skateboarded when I was young, like really young. Yeah. So I got into, you know, the, the suicidal tendencies and um, like the heavier kind of stuff. And, you know, everyone was in Metallica and all the shit. That stuff never did anything for me. Like, yeah, I just, same. it was kind of like, eh. then I heard suicidal. And I was like, holy shit. And then from suicidal, it went to like Sex Pistols, then to Misfits, then Minor Threat. And then everything just blew up for me. And I went the opposite route of you. I put on the persona of wanting to be a tough guy and just drowned everything else, which was really stupid. And it was only in my late teens where I started to be like, okay, this is stupid. This isn't who I am. You know, and it was the same thing. I sit in my room, just scream along to these records. I'd go out and skate and hurt myself and just be like, fuck it. Yeah, that's what's up, you know? And I was also an only child, same as you. Oh, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, but I didn't like I didn't do anything creative, honestly, until I was like seventeen. That's like to me, you know. Some people are like, "Oh, skateboarding's creative." It wasn't. It was just skateboarding was a way for me to like just get out of my head. Yeah, which but good, which I think is creativity. Like it's not it's not what we what we uh, laud as creativity but like fuck man like painting your house is creative you know yeah fair enough. i don't i don't want to get nitty-gritty on, on operational definitions but like like i think like stomping around your room was this thing but like or if it wasn't if that wasn't creative that was like the key to the creativity like it unlocked the door and then you just took a while to step through it you know like well i i i agree with you and it's funny listening to you speak about how like this kind of informed your creativity i'm just like i think about it and I was very similar, but you took on the role of the funny guy. I took on the role of the, of the, the isolated guy. Yeah. But I think like your way in was suicidal tendencies and, and minor threat. And my way in was fucking blimping too. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Songs about princess Leia and shit. Like I think like we, you know, we, we got led to the, the source by two, two distinctly different hands for sure. Um, but yeah, yeah. It's, no, it's, it's just, really I, I've, I've never, I've never, I've never really thought about it per se. And I've never really spoke, heard anyone speak about it and me be like, that's really similar to how I feel and how I was when I was a kid, but it just it never, never fully manifested, I guess. Well, it expressed way. itself differently, you know, yeah. there, and you can yeah. see it in certain factions of punk where it's destruction rather than creation, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, this kind of nihilistic, uh, let's do drugs and just destroy things out of this angst and all this, and these emotions and all these feelings and other people. I mean, like Jono, like uh, you were saying, like, how, how can I create something, pick up a base? And I, I think that's what, I mean, I know for you, Chris, and for me, when I discovered punk, that's what was so empowering. It was like, oh, I can do this? Me? Little little young me who doesn't know anything? I can set up shows? I can start a record label? I can go on tour? I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. I don't have to be... I don't have to knock at doors, you know, and plead to become into this rock star world. This is just... Mm. 
it's kids by kids. And that was so empowering to someone who didn't feel very powerful or felt very kind of not powerful, (laughs) very weak. (laughs) It's true. Like you found that way in, you know, and that's what's so great about punk. It's like, there's no, the barrier for entry is just like, I mean, just a confusing feeling (laughs) that that you want to figure out. And showing up. And yeah, just yeah. showing up and uh, you're in. Uh... It's true. Yeah. And see, you had probably had a very different experience doing like going to shows than both Tibor and I did because we grew up in big city, in big city, in big cities. So your first shows were local bands. I mean, yeah. don't get me wrong. I don't know how many bands actually toured out to Cape Breton. Well, Funny enough, uh, my first like real punk show was uh, Propagandi, Gob, um, or maybe it wasn't the Propagandi show yet, but Propagandi came through, but Gob, Layaway Plan, uh, like one of those big ass tours. Uh, uh, fuck, I want it. There's a name of a band that I buy a thread. Remember that band? The From BC, the hardcore band. Yeah. Like, very old, like super esoteric, but like they came to Cape Breton. And then after that, Propagandi came. And then after that, like Bigwig came. And like all Ooh. these people were just kind of spreading the word, like it's worth it to go out there. So, like by the time high school came, uh, we were, by the time we were graduating, like we were opening for Alexis on Fire at a Steelworkers Hall in Sydney. Like, holy shit. Okay. It's, it's like bands were coming out there because the promoters were doing a really good job and there was nothing else to do for that that demographic of kids even the even like the classic you know jock folks would still go to shows because it was the best thing that was happening it was that or like you know drugs and and whatever in a parking lot somewhere so it was a good alternative for most people that's crazy that's cool you know like uh stephanie um my girlfriend she grew up in a small town on the sunshine coast and they they didn't have bands come out there until a friend of hers who actually now lives in Cape Breton. Um, he did longboard races. Yeah. And um, he would start, he would, he had a weekend called Mayday weekend, uh, coast longboarding. And he would bring bands in. So like SNFU played rebel spell played. Um, shit. There were other bands. I, I can't really remember, but, but it, it's, you know, the, these are, prior to him doing that, there was nothing, like yeah. literally nothing. There were no punks. There were no kids going to shows. There were no kids putting on shows. There was nothing. Wow. But it's just, I, you know, I, I think sometimes I take for granted that I grew up in Montreal. Yeah. Because I was like, my first big show, like big out of town band, I think was L7. In like 19, oh, wow. 1990 or 91. That would have been sick. You know, so it's, <clears throat> and then it goes from there. I mean, I've seen every band you could possibly imagine pretty much that was alive in the late eighties and nineties. Yeah. And I'm so fortunate. And I totally took it for granted. <laughs> yeah. Well, like even like the, the next city over from us is Halifax. And like, even then people didn't go to Halifax. Like if, if they went to Halifax, like if a punk band went to Halifax, they're probably going to go to Sydney. Um, yeah, but Sydney like, and Halifax aren't close. They're like four and a half hours. But well, like, I thought it was further. Okay. Yeah, you could like so you could go to a show. You could drive 
if you if your parents gave you your car or whatever, you could get to Halifax that night for a show, but like it wouldn't be any point because they're going to come to Cape Breton. But like even then, like even with access, a four hour drive to a a big city compared to Sydney, it's still so isolated. People don't want to do that drive, and like it's harder to see. Like I didn't get to see anyone until I moved here, and then I started seeing them on big stages, and I'm like, fuck this shit. I saw Saves a Day at like the docks, and I'm like, I can't. I have to leave. I hate. I hate this. I hate how far away they are. I hate that like their guitars are working. I hate that like <laughs> like that I can't smell the smell, you know, and I'm back here and I just paid seven yeah. bucks for a beer. Like what the hell is going on? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, I I can't go to big shows. And like I was on uh I think I was away on a job or something. Or maybe I don't I don't remember what summer it was, but I missed Satanic Surfers at the uh the cathedral, which was this place you probably played there at some point at Bathurst and Queen. In Toronto, potentially, yeah, I don't. Um, Satanic Service played like a, a small to mid-sized club, and then broke up, and then I didn't get to see them. And then they started doing their their you know Taste the Poison and shit came out and like doing all their new stuff, but they're playing like Rockfest, and I'm like, I'm yeah, not, exactly. I'm not going to Rockfest to see Satanic Service because it will unseat all the things. Like I'll, I'll feel the same way about them as I do about Saves the Day now, where mm. I'm like, bunch of. Yeah. You know, and it, it's funny, like uh, satanic surfers slept on our couches, yeah. like mine and Tebow's when we lived together. Yeah, like yeah. and amazing for them. I would not, I would not take that from them at all because like they, they've worked harder than so many bands, and they deserve to live off their thing. But I don't want to take the, I don't want to take the thing. I don't want to take the sweaty bar and and Ramuski mm-hmm. out of my head. You know. Yeah, uh, you know, there's there's that whole DIY. I think it's more DIY than like mainstream punk idea that this is ours and we want to keep it ours. And we don't want to share it, but at the same time we want the, for the people like you and I know that for the bands to keep going, there has to be a little bit of money. Oh yeah. And you know, once you start getting older, you're going to be a little more hesitant about quitting your job to go on tour for a week or two weeks, whatever it is. And it's just not going to happen if there's no money. Yeah, for sure. Um, so we're happy for the bands that they get to play the festivals, but I'm like you, I, I hate them. I won't go. I don't like going to them. Yeah, I didn't like anytime we played any. I didn't really get to play anything that big in my musical career. But I was at, I was like filming, or I was like, Mal- Malcolm played. Uh, who is it with? The Vulgar Machines, I think the name of the yeah. band was. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, pardon my shitty egglophone <laughs> rendition of their name. Uh, they were amazing, but like, you know, not many people knew Malcolm at that point. So like, it was just kind of trickling into the show and it was just kind of like vacuous and they played great, but it just felt like empty and kind of unrequited. And I think they all felt a little weird. And then yeah. Vulgar Machines came out and there's like, 50 bajillion people climbing all over the place and the, the, the tone changed but like and then my friend's Tom Fun Orchestra have played like tons of big venues that I'd go to and like it's basically an empty football field and like 20 people on stage blasting <laughs> music out to the air and you're just like why would anyone want to do this this is horrible but they needed fucking money and like yeah yeah and they love to play so but. and they were great I got to see them once they're unbelievably good yeah <clears throat> yeah um, all right, back to back to film for a second. So, 
looking through your timeline, um, you started doing music videos. Speaking of Malcolm, you started doing music videos in the late 2000s. Like you did videos for Malcolm in like 2007 or eight, and then Horses in 2009. Yeah. Um, and then you've made a bunch. Yeah, not too many. You know, like I just, uh, they never, like I never wanted to make them for our, our own bands. Like I wasn't playing in Horses at the time. And like I never wanted to make a video for attention other than just like some bullshit thing if, <laughs> if, if we ever did it. But um, I can't remember. I don't think we ever made a music video or just like live so. shows or something. Um, but it's fun and like I would only do it if friends asked me to do it like I wouldn't be like hey let's shoot a music video unless like, like, I had like a really strong idea about something but generally it's like hey I got this song coming out will you do this thing for free and I'd be like okay cool <laughs> so so the Peace Be Still video was all their idea? Uh, no that was my <laughs> their they wanted a music video and that's what I gave them, you know, like, so like no one comes to me with creative, like they're just like, Hey, we want a music video. And then I'm like, okay, but we have to do this. <laughs> but luckily like those guys are nuts too. So it was pretty, yeah. that oh, was no, I, video. I, I talked to Peter pretty often. Nice. I love that dude. And uh, what's the singer's name? Marcel? Marcel. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Maurice, you, sorry. Maurice, 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 Maurice. That's it. Yeah. Uh, yes. And did the wrong name. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, Marie. Um, I remember we were out uh, recording with Jesse Gander in BC in August, and something came up about Peace Be Still, and he knows those guys. And he was saying that when Peace Be Still were out there recording, the only word Maurice would say was true. 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 Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Jesse would be like, okay, uh, try that one line again. True. True, true, true. Uh, tr- yeah. <laughs> ah, true, 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 true. I still say that. I still say it. And it, it's legit from them. I that they, was had really like, funny. they used to have a t-shirt that was like a, just a finger like spinning a basketball and it said true level. Like <laughs> deeply ingrained in them. Um, I remember playing with them in uh, Toronto one time with actually threes and dig it up. And all he would talk about was dominoes. Right. Like he literally got on stage and was like, you guys like dominoes? <laughs> and of the, yeah. Get off stage and you're like, hey man, that was awesome. He's like, thanks, man. Do you eat dominoes? <laughs> what? <laughs> One of the most bizarre stage presences I've ever encountered for sure. I, I, I was trying to understand it for a while until I realized that uh it's that the point isn't to understand, the point is just to kind of be it. Although I think that there's some like not so nice stuff said sometimes, but um, that wouldn't surprise me. It's, okay, it's kind of like the Wesley Willis of yeah. He's, he's always just kind of his foot was on the gas, whether whether the car was in gear or not. You know, um, yeah. <laughs> he was in my movie though. He he has a pretty chunky role in my feature, Maurice. Oh, see, I've never seen it. I've only seen the trailer. Um, I'll send you. I'll send you a link. Oh, sweet, awesome, thank you. I was actually Steph and I were talking about that last night. Well, if but anyone, what I do. Th- Anyone we'll listening, click. you can actually click. There's a screener link under the trailer. If you go to my website, you can just watch the movie for free. Because we had a weird thing with the distributor and it's not on Amazon Prime anymore. So uh, fucking watch it for free. Sweet. Um, so, go ahead, Debo. One of the questions that we often ask our guests is this balance between work, music, and leisure. And how you find that balance. Um, 
Is there a balance? And what is leisure to you? The, yeah, leisure is like this stuff and like, right? Like working on my show, like to me, that's leisure. It's like I, I can watch a, a series or something, but I find when I'm alone, I have a hard time with it. So like it's, I can watch stuff with people and that would be leisure, but I'm just watching stuff alone. A lot of times I'm just thinking about what I'm writing or like what I have to do tomorrow or like just riffing through a, like a brief that I just got or whatever. So, and then sometimes I'm just like, well, I could like just chill out tonight or I could make some gains on this next episode of whatever. So that I'm working on like night drives, for example, is like my, my leisure time is animating right now. So, mm. um, but that leisure time is like with the dangled carrot of more, more of the of a project that could yeah. fruition into something more for sure. So like, I don't know, like I don't feel like I'm, quite relaxing very often. I was at a cottage last weekend though. A friend invited me up last weekend. So that was kind of leisurely, but otherwise I'm just hustling. That's So how do you prevent yourself from gassing out? Um, Does it ever happen? It happens. It has, I haven't like hit a crazy wall yet. Knock on wood. A wood. There's no wood in here. <laughs> Nothing wood around me. What the hell? Um, but yeah, it hasn't it hasn't gone crazy. I've like come close, but I don't know. I think I have a pretty high threshold. And when you came close, what happened? Um it's usually just when there's like too much uh like input. Like when I'm trying to like there's sometimes on set where you're trying to get you're A, you're trying to get through the day. And then B, you're trying to get what you like, and C, you're trying to get what the client likes. Not necessarily any of those in, in, in that order, but like trying to craft a performance that's going to make a client happy, that's focused on one thing, that's going to make you happy, to not make you look like you did something like dumb. And then, like an actor who has to eat a hamburger and smile, like we don't, we don't smile when we like food. You know, we look like we're going to die when something's good. You know. <laughs> And like, so you're trying to be authentic or trying to make that person do something authentic. And then your, your words are muddying it up. The client's words are muddying it up. Their idea is muddying it up. And then I can't get out of it. I can't like, I can't beat the performance into a spot. I feel very helpless. And then I get, you know, kind of tight and insecure. And it's like, well, what am I doing wrong? Like I start to turn on myself. So like, I, I, I think maybe when I burn out, I turn on myself like pretty hard. Like, why aren't you? why aren't you taking control of this or whatever? It always works out, but like sometimes in the heat of the moment, it, it's like, fuck, are you really that good at this? Like, should you just, is this going to be your last job? You know? That feeling of helplessness is so difficult for us. Yeah. yeah uh, for sure. And like, thankfully it doesn't happen too, too much, but sometimes you get in there and that's the closest I can get when I'm like, I know, I know what I have to do. I just like my tool belt is empty and I've tried yeah. all the things. And like, I remember I was shooting a, a commercial for Walmart, like really early on in my career. It was like the first job that like had a, a really like a sizable budget and like all the trucks that I would help park and stuff were all there already. Like I showed up late, not late as in not on time, but later than a PA would. <clears throat> and like seeing the trucks and being like, oh my God, this is crazy. It was a night shoot. And the actor couldn't remember uh, their lines at all. And of course, like you're, you're talking about 
like matching the price of something at a store somewhere in the middle of the night and like couldn't get it out and it was just helpless 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 and started going in there like oh well okay cool it was a nice career i I walked out and got to see the trucks parked for me but next week Mm -hmm. i'm going to be parking those trucks again because i clearly have failed and like just kind of battling through that and like she couldn't remember and couldn't remember couldn't remember and then i was like I'm going to try something because I had done like workshops with like uh, this woman, Judith Weston, who had a, has tons of amazing insight. If anyone is interested in directing mm-hmm. actors and performance directing, check out Directing Actors by Judith Weston. Very good book. Very amazing scholar in mind. Um, she does this thing where you try opposites. So like I had this moment of clarity where it's like, just like try an opposite, see what it brings out. Normally it's a rehearsal technique because you can see where maybe your, your story could change or where your performance could change. But I'm like, fuck it, I'm going to do an opposite. I'm like, Talk to this guy because there was a guy asking this girl questions at the cash register and she was just like, oh, I'm doing this thing, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, pretend he's a creep. And then she did that. I didn't, I actually didn't end up telling client we were going to do like a fun run or like a freaky run to kind of jostle. And she did this take where she was just creeped out by him and she just had this edge and just like, I'm checking out and blah, blah, blah. Like she just nailed everything. She went away from commercial, hey, I'm selling products for Walmart into this weird dark territory. Remembered every single line. Client freaks out, obviously. And like, he's like, what the hell is Jono doing? Like, this is going up the rails. And then from then on in, she remembered every single line. Next take, fucking perfect. Back into the Walmart tone. And we were on to the next shot. But like, we had been on the shot for like two hours. We ate two hours just trying to get this one line out. And then... I'm like, well, I'm doomed. And then you remember that one little tool like at the bottom. You're like, oh yeah, what about this? And then it works. And then you move forward and you're like, I am the fucking greatest director ever. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I don't know. It's like, it's hard to, it's hard to say. Cause like, I, I don't know how, yeah. I don't know how I didn't, I think I suffer internally a lot too. I don't, I just don't let it show. And somehow mm. I, I can push forward. Well, I think I think as a director, you kind of have to, right? Well, yeah, it's and 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 like I was saying earlier too, like when I was a PA, seeing a lot of commercial directors just like barking orders from behind the monitor. Sometimes that's unavoidable, but I've just seen a lot of bullshit, and I'm like, I'm not gonna be like that, or just being really mean to people, or being like, what the hell was that? And like, you know, seeing that and seeing how that affects the tone of the set, and then now the set tone is very important to me because everyone I think has to at least like not want to die, you know? <laughs> Cause like a lot of people are there just to like move stuff and lift shit and like burn their hands on lights. But like, if they don't want to like, just like put their face into the lamp until it melts their brain, like that's an accomplishment. And I want to strive for that set. And that set is going to get better performances and less likely to have someone forgetting their lines when they're trying to smile and eat a hamburger, you know, like, um, can I ask you a question? You referenced smiling and eating a hamburger uh, so many times this episode. Is that a is that a film thing or is that from a personal trauma? No, it's a <laughs> it's 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 a it's a thing like a bite and smile. Like any food, any okay. food that's ingested, you have to eat it and smile. And to me, that's the most inhuman thing that's ever existed. Okay, okay. Again, I didn't know if it was a thing or if it was one of your things. Yeah, no, sorry, I'm I'm overextending that analogy, but yeah, it's it's fully real and and yeah. Oh, yeah no, I mean, you know, you, I'm surprised that. You take a bite. Yeah, because if you take a bite, for me, if you take a bite of something that's really good, you're like, oh my God, that's awesome. So yeah. a smile, it's like an, it's not, like an O face or something, you know? Like <laughs> There's, a, there's an, an episode of Night Drives about this exact thing. 
Yeah. Nice. But it, it's interesting what you're talking about in directing, because there's, there is obviously a sense of helplessness sometimes because you're not acting, you're directing. So you're dependent on what other people do. And if they're yeah. not doing what you're expecting them to do, or it's not hitting the note, that must bring whole sorts of feelings that you have to manage and figure out a way. How can I get the best out of that person or the best out of my team? For sure. For sure. But the, the thing about like once you get to set, I mean, the, the story I just told was an anomaly for sure. Cause it happened once in my career and it hasn't happened to that extent mm. since, but by the time you get to set, like you've cast the person that you wanted or who's closest to the line that you're trying to, trying to, uh, dance on right so like ostensibly that person's instincts are right in the wheelhouse and you're just like oh you hesitated on that word or like you know underline this word a little more or like you know scare me or whatever like you just you're just lobbing little things in there so normally there's not a lot to do but like sometimes you'll have a non-actor involved who will get hung up on stuff or like a client who just can't get past the the hamburger and smiling <laughs> um, you know, so say it again. Generally, again. generally, <laughs> say it again. generally, it uh, like you've 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 set yourself up. Like basically, pre-production is mixing paint, and then you're you're on set, and you get to paint a bunch of different canvases, and then later on, you you amalgamate those in post. So, like by the time you're about to paint the wall, you're pretty sure you like the colors that you've got mixed already. So, thankfully, it's not always like a. a huge slog to communicate that but yeah but that's the thing you're like well i hired this guy because he does the thing but he's not doing the thing and i don't know how to be like go back to the thing that you did you know and and every single actor is different every single actor has a different level of experience they have a different way of working they have a different relationship to what acting is they could be yeah. a union actor or a non-union actor. They could be a person you cast off the street. So you're constantly trying to figure out how people work and what you can say to, okay, motherfucker, you need to remember the lines or all of these people are going to be like, you know, staying away from their families for extra hours. My production company is going to be fighting with the agency, but over time, like just mm -hmm. fucking remember your lines. But like, also you can't do that because then, they're going to be like, oh, fuck, 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 fuck. Like, what am I going to, like, I can't remember lines and that's going to send them down the thing. So yeah. you got to be like yeah. stern, warm, funny, like all these things. And at the same time, individually, like it's such a, it's such a crazy thing. And I, I honestly feel like sleeping in unfinished basements in like Freiburg and like <laughs> meeting, yeah. And like meeting people, like the van breaking down somewhere and, uh, you're staying in a mechanics shop in Saskatchewan or whatever, like these little experiences and you go to the Royal Albert to, uh, to play and you're like, Hey, can you guys sweep the glass off the stage for us? And they laugh in your face <laughs> and like all these little things you're like, I've talked to kind of every single person and I've talked to people who are fucking scary and are like not cushy commercial people. So it kind of like yeah. diminished the fear of, of, being blunt with people and like trying to get in with people and, and gave me a lot of ways to kind of figure out how to navigate people and talk to them and not get them to beat me up, you know? And I think you've said it very clearly, you know, all through this talk, you know, how, making your intentions clear, being nice. And on the other hand, you could have like trying to please people all the time, but that doesn't work because you have to be yourself. 
And it's finding that balance between, you know, uh, being yourself, making your intentions clear, being nice. For sure. And being real all at the same time. Yeah, for sure. And, and being like, professional. And professional and on time. Like, yeah, it's a lot to balance. And like the niceness is, I think, just part of my way of navigating. But it's more like kind of compassion too because you, you don't want, you, like we're not changing the world. We're not, you know, we're not, we're, we're selling stuff. So let's all have a nice time while we're doing it and not be, not be mean about it. And you know, just... Shows.